Episode 32, The Crusades, Part 1. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. You know, I say that intro every time, but in this episode, it really applies because the medieval crusades definitely had an important impact on today's geopolitical conflicts. The ongoing war in Syria, that conflict was shaped by things that happened during the crusades and even before. The ongoing transfer of wealth from the West to the oil-rich countries of the Middle East, that ties back to the Crusades. ISIS, the Palestinian-Jewish conflict in Israel, all of these have some roots in the Crusades of the Middle Ages. The Crusades were a response by the rulers of Western Europe to a conflict that had been going on for some time. The Europeans sent a couple of armies from Europe into the Holy Land at different times to recapture some of their holy sites, those holy sites had previously been held by the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire, which was Christian, had been in conflict with the Muslim empires of Persia and later the Turks. But the roots of the conflict go all the way back to the Roman Republic. What I mean here is that there has been a long history of conflict over control of the area that we call the Holy Land. Some of that's religious conflict, some of it's just territorial conflict. Actually, that area has seen conflict since the dawn of recorded history. There's always been someone fighting in the Holy Land in the area around it. That larger area is often called the Levant, which includes Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Israel, and sort of includes Turkey, Egypt, and Iraq. The term Levant is a kind of French idiom for the East, basically a description of the eastern end of the Mediterranean. It comes from the word rising in French, like the rising of the sun, which is in the east, of course. So Levant kind of means over there where the sun rises, as I gesture vaguely eastward. So there's always been someone fighting in the Levant or in the Holy Land. In this episode, we're going to look at one of the more important conflicts of the early Middle Ages, a conflict that was between a group of Christian countries and a group of Muslim countries, and it came to be known as the Crusades. There were, depending on how you count them, between four and 17 separate crusades. And they didn't all happen in the Levant. But when you say crusades, generally what you mean is Christian knights from Europe going to the Holy Land to fight the Muslims. And really, you just mean the four major crusades. So before I get into the history of the crusades, I need to mention there is a lot of moral hand-wringing about the bloody history of the crusades in part because there's a real sense that the violence and slaughter that the crusader armies inflicted is in direct conflict with the code of chivalry and in conflict with some of the principles of Christianity, like love your enemy. There's a sort of a sense that a Christian knight should not go rampaging through a city that they have just conquered, killing all the men, women, and children, though that is exactly what happened a couple of times. I'm going to talk about this a little more as we go along, but I think it's also fair to point out that that kind of bloody massacre was practiced by both sides. Neither side really lived up to the ideals of their own religion. It should also be said that Islam does, in the Quran, make provisions for holy war and the attacking and destroying of those who resist Islam. You don't find that in the Bible, though, at least not in the New Testament. So, in a sense, it seems more like a betrayal of some of the core principles of Christianity, in a way. Well, the roots of the conflict go way back, but the main causes of the Crusades 
were that in 637, the Rashidun Caliphate under Caliph Umar had captured several holy sites, including Jerusalem. These had been held at the time by the Byzantine Empire, and Jerusalem especially had been an important site for Christian pilgrims to visit. Not only was losing Jerusalem a blow to the prestige of the Byzantine Empire, it had also been an important source of revenue for the Eastern Church because of the money that was spent there by pilgrims. So, losing Jerusalem to the Muslims was one part of the conflict. I should say here at this point that Caliph Umar, when he captured Jerusalem in 637, he was very respectful to the Christians living in Jerusalem and to their holy sites, though not all the later caliphs were quite as generous. By 691, the Muslims had built the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the site of the Jewish Temple Mount, declaring that this was the place where Muhammad had been taken when he went on what was known as his Isra, or Miraculous Journey. And it was from the rock that's now under the Dome of the Rock. From that rock, he ascended to heaven and then returned. So it's now a very holy site to the Muslims, as well as the Christians and the Jews. Q, 1500 years of fighting. The other reason for the Crusades, in addition to the Muslim occupation of Jerusalem, was that the Muslims, now in this area controlled by the Seljuk Turks, were steadily and aggressively encroaching on Christian lands that were held by Byzantium. The Seljuk Turks captured most of what is now Turkey, hence the name Turkey, which had been held by the Byzantine or Roman Empire for almost 500 years. And the Byzantine emperor, Alexius I, did not have enough of a standing army to meet the threat. In a sense, this is really the main reason that the Crusades were called, though the given reason for the Crusades was the recapturing of Jerusalem. In 1095 AD, Alexius looked around, and he realized he needed help, so he asked the Pope. The Pope at the time was Pope Urban II, and he saw, in Alexius's request, a big opportunity. He saw it as a chance to assert his influence over some of the rulers of the small kingdoms and duchies of Europe, and as a chance to possibly heal the divide between the eastern and western branches of the church. And this was a chance for the Western Church to put itself back on top of the church hierarchy and make the Pope, again, the leader of the whole entire church. Bit of backstory here. We're already past the big division of the Eastern and Western branches of the church. Back in episode 29, I mentioned that this was beginning to happen as the Western Church moved into a fully Latin mass or Latin service, and they used the Latin translation of the Bible, which was translated by Jerome, and that version was known as the Vulgate. The Western Church was clearly under the leadership of the Pope, and it did all its services and everything in Latin. The Eastern Church was under the leadership of the Patriarch of Byzantium, and it did everything in Greek. The churches began to do their services differently, not just the language, but the performance of the service, the Western services being conducted in Latin, eventually coming to be called a Mass, and the Eastern services conducted in Greek. These differences, plus ongoing church infighting, which often included the Pope trying to assert his primacy over the Patriarch of Byzantium and the Patriarch having nothing to do with it, this created a widening rift between the two branches. Eventually, in 1054, Pope Leo IX excommunicated the patriarch. That, the patriarch's name was Michael Cellularius. And he, in turn, excommunicated Leo right back. From then on, the two branches were completely separate in terms of liturgy, policy, and hierarchy. 
they eventually developed into the two largest branches of Christianity. That is the Western Church that became the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Church, which became the Greek Orthodox Church. This split is known as the Great Schism. Interesting side note, in 1965, Pope Paul VI and Patriarch Athenagoras met in Jerusalem and they presided over joint ceremonies revoking the original excommunications. Anyway, back to the Crusades. Emperor Alexius, who was also the patriarch at the time, asked Pope Urban II for help to fight off the encroaching Turkish Muslims. Pope Urban began to preach in Europe, asking for Christian knights to heed the call, fight back what he called the infidels, and retake the Holy Land. By the way, the Muslims also called the Christians infidels. One important sermon that happened in 1095 in the French town of Clermont, and in that sermon, Urban preached to a gathering of nobles, including some knights and some lords, and he offered this incentive. Whoever, for devotion alone, not to gain honor or money, goes to Jerusalem to liberate the church of God there, can substitute this journey for all penance. Now, this is a big deal. He was offering them the opportunity to get out of purgatory and go straight to heaven when they died. I guess I'm going to have to come back to this idea of purgatory when I get to the history of hell in episode 41 or 42. But basically, the Catholic view of that time was that when you died, if you didn't go straight to hell because you were that bad, if you didn't go straight to hell, you went to an interim place called purgatory, where you basically worked off all of your sins through labors and trials before you were allowed to go to heaven. There's nothing in the Bible about this purgatory thing, but it was a significant part of Catholic theology in the Middle Ages. So Pope Urban is offering these knights and nobles a sort of of get-out-of-jail-free card, allowing them to bypass thousands of years of purgatory. That's a pretty strong incentive. It's also interesting to me that they all believed that the Pope had the right and the power to be able to do this, to make this kind of proclamation. Right? Just, hey, it's my job. I can tell you, you're getting out of purgatory. No problem. I said it. That means that God's going to abide by it. I wonder about Pope Urban. Did he really think he was able to grant this kind of thing? Or was he just using this to cynically manipulate their fears? Did he go back afterwards after he had said this and have a good laugh with the cardinals? Ha, you'll never guess what I just got them to believe. Anyway, in response to Urban's offer of escaping purgatory in exchange for going on a crusade, the crowd began to chant, Deus Volt, which means God wills it. And soon this chant was being echoed all over Europe. Eventually, two major groups of soldiers began to get together and make their way to Byzantium. Many of the soldiers painted crosses on their shields and their breastplates, and they got the name Cruces Signatus, or those wearing the sign of the cross. The word Cruces Signatus makes its way into English as the word crusader, and from this we get the name of the wars, also the Crusades. One of the groups heading towards Byzantium was led by a monk named Peter the Hermit, and it consisted of some knights and a lot of ordinary townspeople, although they were, you know, between 20 and 40,000 of them, so they were actually an army. But they weren't very well organized, nor were they really equipped for a long campaign in a foreign country. This group has been given the name the People's Crusade because it did include a substantial number of commoners, but it was a good bit more organized than just a crowd of people. Not a lot more organized, but many of these people were descended from the barbarians, and that's how they did things back in the day. They just picked up and they headed off to go fighting somewhere. 
they did also have some actual knights with them as well. The other group was led by some nobles from France, Normandy, and Italy, and they were way more organized. This group included Robert, the Duke of Normandy, who was the son of William the Conqueror. So that gave the whole effort some essential gravitas and credibility. There were some other important French nobles as well, some of whom were going for religious reasons, some of whom were going for glory and personal enrichment. This group was led by the nobles who brought their own personal armies, and they managed to work relatively well together at times. They were much more prepared for battle and for a prolonged campaign, which would take them deep into the enemy's territory. Well, the People's Crusade got to Byzantium first, and Emperor Alexius was surprised by the size and the disorganization of the group. He knew the army led by nobles was also coming as well, and he wasn't sure if he really wanted all of those armed men camped right around Byzantium because he didn't really have enough of his own troops to fight off the crusade troops if they got ambitious. So Alexius had the People's Crusade ferried across the Bosporus Straits, so that's taking them out of Europe and into Asia on the Turkey side. And they had them set up camp over there on the other side of the Bosporus Straits. And that was actually Turkish Muslim territory. The People's Crusade cautiously advanced deeper into Turkish territory, but they were soon ambushed by the Turks and they were caught unprepared. And most of the People's Crusade was slaughtered. The other group, the organized one, then showed up in Byzantium, and by the time they had arrived, the group had grown to about 60,000 men, probably the largest actual army in Europe since the Roman times. Alexius went from surprised to actually scared, and he made the whole group swear that they would keep faith with him and return all the Byzantine cities that they captured and give them back to Byzantium. In exchange for this promise, he gave them money, supplies, some guides, and he ferried them across the Bosporus. This group of crusaders fares a lot better than the first group. They fought their way south, winning several battles and capturing a few important cities like Nicaea and Edessa. They captured Antioch as well, about two years after Pope Urban had first called for the crusades. Some of the crusaders stayed in Edessa and Antioch and set up crusader kingdoms there. The rest of the crusader army pushed on towards Jerusalem. When they got to Jerusalem, they found that all the wells had been poisoned, all of the cattle had been killed, and what few trees there were had all been cut down. They tried to besiege the city anyway, but they weren't having any success until a supply fleet arrived from Italy. They actually took those ships apart and they built siege towers out of them, and using these siege towers, they captured Jerusalem. Now what happened next is really one of the low points of all of Christian history. The Christian knights swept through Jerusalem, killing everyone they found, men, women, and children. It was a bloody slaughter and far out of character for knights who believed in Christ and the code of chivalry. Though, it should be said that this was also very typical of what happened to conquered cities in the ancient world. The sort of unspoken rule of besieging a city in the ancient world was, if the inhabitants surrendered, they would usually be treated mercifully, most of the time. But if they resisted, the usual result was they would be slaughtered. It happened that way a lot. Still, it seems that Christian knights should have held themselves to a higher standard. Anyway, after the siege, Jerusalem was held by the Christians. There were now crusader kingdoms in Antioch, Edessa, and Jerusalem. 
But instead of giving these back to the Byzantine Empire like they had promised, the Crusaders chose kings and made these cities independent little kingdoms, not tied to Byzantium or any other kingdom. Pretty soon, though, many of the surviving Crusader knights went home to Europe. Now, to be honest here, I found the history of the Crusades much more interesting than I had thought, so I've managed to fill this one whole episode with just the first crusade. So I'm going to do another episode on the rest of the Crusades, which, just as some foreshadowing for you here, they do not go as well for the Crusaders. Next episode, we'll cover the other Crusades, and we'll meet two of the coolest guys in the Middle Ages, including one guy whose nickname might be as cool as Charles the Hammer. Next week, we'll meet Saladin, the great Muslim general, and Richard the Lionhearted. Now that's a good nickname.